Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank my newest sponsor, Indeed, for supporting this episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever. So every hire is critical. Indeed is the number one job site in the world. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply, and the offer is only valid through December 30th. On my last podcast, I talked about how Donald Trump tweeted the stimulus rug right out from under the market when he basically took his marbles and went home, right? He told Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats he was done negotiating. That was it. We're just going to go uh, to the election or maybe next year before we have any additional stimulus. And of course, the minute the markets read that tweet, they immediately tanked because after all, uh, the investors in the market know exactly where their bread is buttered and that's at the Fed. And the Fed has already said they're not printing more money until the government sells more bonds. In other words, the Fed is on hold with additional monetary stimulus until Congress comes through with additional fiscal stimulus so that the Fed has more bonds to monetize. And so the markets went down. And I remarked on the podcast that the markets might continue to fall until uh, either the Fed came to the rescue or Trump uh, cried uncle. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, the Fed didn't even have time to come to the rescue because no sooner had, I guess, the digital ink dried on the president's tweet, uh, he took one look at what happened to the stock market and immediately uh, threw out an olive branch to Pelosi by tweeting out, okay, I guess I'm willing to uh, go for a smaller stimulus, one that immediately sends out the checks, right? The $1,200 or $1,400 checks. I forget how much, but Trump is like, hey, let's at least send these checks out. I'm willing to sign that. And that was the first step. But they kept going up from there. I mean, Trump kept outbidding himself. He didn't have to go anywhere, right? The Democrats just stood where they were as Trump and the Republicans kept bidding against themselves to up what they were willing to do. And in fact, earlier today, Larry Kudlow uh, was interviewed wearing a mask, uh, but through the mask, you know, you could hear what he was saying. I thought it was very appropriate, you know, that he was wearing a mask to kind of hide his face 
uh, from uh, you know the statement that he said, because on the one hand, Cudlow was lying about how strong the economy was and how we've got this great V-shaped recovery, right? So we've got this strong recovery, but then on the other hand, he said that we really need this stimulus and that the president is willing to do 1.8 trillion. Now remember, they started at 1 trillion and now they're up to 1.8. I think Pelosi and the Democrats initially were at three, but I think they may have come down to two, four or something like that. But now Cudlow says, hey, we're at one eight. And he specifically referenced the spread now. He said the spread is narrowing and I'm sure we're going to get a deal. It's narrowing because the Republicans keep raising uh, their number. That, that, that's why it's narrowing. But, you know, it's inconsistent. If Larry Cudlow is going to talk about how great the recovery is and how strong the economy is, how can he say in the same breath that we need this stimulus? Because the fact that we need all this artificial support is an admission that the economy is weak. That's why it needs all this help. You can't say we've got this really strong economy, but then say, but, you know, it needs a government crutch in order to support it. I mean, either the economy is strong, in which case it doesn't need stimulus, or it's weak and it needs stimulus. And of course, the fact of the matter is stimulus doesn't actually make a weak economy strong it actually makes a weak economy weaker by addicting it to stimulus. You know, it's because of the stimulus of the past, right? Particularly quantitative easing. And now, you know, if you listen to a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the Fed, and they, you know, they it, it, they hinted about that more again today, that if the economy weakens, if it shows any sign of weakening, they stand ready for more QE. If you recall when, Bernanke first rolled out the whole concept of quantitative easing. This was an emergency. This was a temporary measure. We had a once in a lifetime event, a hundred year flood. And due to this emergency that nobody saw coming, came completely out of left field, the Fed was going to resort to this unconventional monetary policy. It was going to take out this tool that it didn't even know it had, but you know it was going to dust it off, and then when the emergency was over, it was going to put it back in that cupboard, never to be used again, maybe in another 100 years, right, when we had another one of these unexpected financial crises. And Bernanke specifically went out of his way to tell people that we weren't monetizing the debt, that the Fed was not a permanent source of government financing, that all the bonds that the Fed was buying was buying temporarily until the emergency was over. And then it was going to sell the bonds into the market. It was going to shrink its balance sheet. It was going to return it to normal, right? That is what they told us. Now, of course, they were lying. I was one of the few people that publicly called Bernanke out as a liar. And I've, I've been proven right on that. But now when you listen to members of the FOMC, uh, QE is now just, you know, a, a, a standard operating procedure. It's like, it's not just the last offense, it's the first offense, because that's really all they got, right? Once you're at the zero bound, I mean, unless they're talking about negative interest rates, which thus far they've been reluctant to do on a nominal basis. But once you're at zero, which we're obviously stuck at uh, indefinitely, what has the Fed got? Well, the only tool is that once in a hundred year uh, QE tool, which now they use every time for just any kind of routine uh, economic slowdown. But the reason that the economy now needs this emergency tool constantly 
is because the Fed used it in the first place. The Fed so crippled the U.S. economy by giving it the QE crutch that now the only way it can limp along is with that crutch. I mean, if you take the crutch away and, you know, the economy completely implodes, it collapses. So we didn't cure the economy by uh, coming in with QE. We just created a bubble that is addicted to ever-increasing doses of that monetary heroin. But I think it was because Donald Trump so quickly reversed and put the stimulus right back on the table immediately after removing it. That's why we didn't get any follow-through. In fact, the very next day, we had a, a rally in the market because of renewed hopes of stimulus. And then that rally continued through today. And as I said on my last podcast, I knew the stimulus was coming. It didn't make sense that the markets would sell off based on the fear that we wouldn't get stimulus. We're going to get stimulus, not because it's good, but because it's bad. And because it's bad and doesn't work, we're going to get even more of it. Because every time the government sedates the economy with stimulus and the economy gets weaker, then they only have one choice, and that's more stimulus, right? Again, it's like the medieval uh, bloodletting, right? You, you have a patient who's sick, and so you decide to bleed them. You take out their blood, and they get sicker. And then you think, well, I guess we didn't take out enough blood. Let's bleed them some more. Right? And you keep doing that until, until the guy dies. And that's what the Fed is going to do. They're going to keep stimulating this economy by really draining it of its lifeblood until they completely destroy it by killing the dollar. And in fact, what happened even later today, even after Larry Kudlow was saying, hey, we're going to $1.8 trillion, Donald Trump was on Rush Limbaugh's show. And on the Rush Limbaugh show, Trump said that actually he wants a bigger stimulus than even the Democrats want. So in other words, he's not at 1.8 trillion. He's somewhere above 2.4 trillion. And in fact, he indicated something about that because he tweeted, you know, go big or go home uh, when it comes to the stimulus. Look, if those are the choices, I really wish Trump would just go home because no stimulus is better than a stimulus. But now Trump is saying, I want even more. So now he's turning the tables on the Democrats, although maybe it's the Democrats that have turned the tables on Trump and forced Trump to now demand an even bigger stimulus than the one that the Democrats wanted. And of course, they're willing to compromise on that. I wonder if we'll actually end up at the very $3 trillion stimulus that the Democrats initially proposed and that the Republicans rejected. And then Trump will somehow call that a victory even though it's a complete defeat and the victory will really belong to the Democrats who got the Republicans to go all the way up to meet them, which is exactly what I said was going to happen from the very beginning because I knew that the Republicans lost the argument the minute they accepted the false doctrine that stimulus is good. Again, if you believe that a trillion dollars of deficit spending by government money printing by the Fed to finance it. If you believe that's going to help the economy, well, then why won't $3 trillion help it more? If $1 trillion is good, why isn't $3 trillion better? Now, had the Republicans at least been honest, right? It'd be nice to see the Republicans be honest about something, right? And had they at least explained it this way, we are willing to support a $1 trillion stimulus, even though we know it's bad for the economy in the long run. But 
in the short run, it will deliver some temporary relief to Americans who are suffering. But we're willing to accept the longer term negative consequences of this temporary relief. We'll feel better in the short run, but at the expense of feeling worse in the long run. But we're willing to make that bad trade-off because, you know, we understand how bad people are suffering now. And so we're willing to make the deficits bigger, undermine economic growth further, force us to have to make even more painful adjustments in the future as a, in, in, as a, in exchange for this, right? We're, we're making a deal with the devil. We know the devil's going to come and collect, but you know what? A deal with the devil is better than having to deal with reality, right? So they could have at least been honest about why they were going to vote for a stimulus that was a long-term negative, but potentially provided some short-term relief, right? Just like, hey, we're going to take these drugs. We know that these are bad for us, but you know what? We don't really care about the long run because it'll make us feel good right now, right? So that would have been at least honest, and that would have explained why they weren't in favor of $3 trillion. They could have said, look, $1 trillion is bad. We're willing to accept the damage from $1 trillion, but not $3 trillion. The damage from that is so great that it's no longer worth the short-term benefit. The long-term cost is so much higher, so we're not going to do that, right? So that would have been an honest way of presenting it to the American public. But that's not what they did. They went out and said that this is good, that this deficit spending is going to help the economy. We're all in favor of it. We want it. It's a good thing. And so the minute they said that, they lost. They basically were arguing the Democrats' point that government spending helps the economy, that deficits don't matter, that printing money doesn't matter, that we can have all the government we want. We don't even have to pay for it as long as the Federal Reserve prints the money. So the minute they accepted the Democrats' argument, they lost. That was it. I knew it was only a question of time. All the Democrats had to do was stand pat and wait for the Republicans to come up and make a deal. Because now the prospect of no deal, the closer you get to the election, if you're refusing the the free money that everybody wants, well, then you're going to be held uh, accountable when it's not delivered. And, you know, again, Donald Trump campaigned to make America great again by draining the swamp, meaning not doing this stuff, not constantly promising stuff that makes us feel good in the short run, but sacrificing the long-term viability of the U.S. economy. You can't make America great again by doing more of what caused her not to be great in the first place. It was all this reckless deficit spending. It was the big growth in the size of government, more spending, more taxes, more regulation. That's why America lost her greatness. That's why Donald Trump ran on the platform of making America great again. But now he's governing based on the same policies that caused America to lose her greatness in the first place. And so none of, none of what Trump uh, campaigned on, uh, none of those promises are actually being delivered, which is probably why he's not going to return for a second term. But, you know, one of the most frustrating things for me personally about the Trump presidency is having to listen to all these Republicans talking about how great Trump is. Like Rush Limbaugh. I mean, he's fawning all over Trump, letting Trump, you know, deliver one lie after another. 
And, you know, the same thing bothered me when George W. Bush was president. You know, he was another guy that the Republicans were talking about how great he was during the housing bubble. I knew that we had a phony recovery. I knew it was going to end in disaster. And it really frustrated me that so many, you know, other Republicans couldn't see this and instead were acting as if um, Bush was doing a great job. And at the time, I was pointing out to people like Larry Kudlow, you know, that this was going to come back and bite the Republicans. And it did. And we got eight years of Obama as a result of claiming uh, that we had a great economy under Bush. Well, what's going to happen as a result of pretending that we had a great economy under Trump is going to be even worse. And what's even more frustrating is at least I had some company. I mean, there were some Republicans who uh, looked at uh, Bush as a sellout, as a rhino, and really didn't like him. That's not the case today. A lot of the most conservative Republicans, a lot of the guys who were founding members of the Tea Party, which was born out of the frustration for the increase in government spending and deficits uh, in the early years of the Obama administration that sent a lot of people like Rand Paul to the Senate in 2010, those guys have completely signed on to the Trump train. They're totally on board and you know they, they love Trump. And this is frustrating because he is not doing anything that true conservatives, and I'm talking about people who want small government, who want fiscal responsibility, and he's not doing anything that those people want or advocated, yet they love the president anyway. So I think this is just so harmful, apart from being frustrating to watch. Um, it's doing a lot of damage because it's really undermining the credibility of the message of limited government and, and, and free market. But one of the only positives about having Biden president is at least the Republicans will start criticizing him again, right? They're going to start attacking uh, government, especially if you have the Democrats controlling both houses of Congress. All of a sudden, you're going to start to see Republicans criticizing government spending, criticizing deficits. So, you know, I'll be happy to see them do that. But the problem is they're going to look like such hypocrites to the public to start criticizing something when Democrats are doing it, but they were completely championing it when the Republicans were doing it. If massive deficits didn't matter under Trump, then why should they suddenly matter under Biden? And that is going to be the problem because the Republicans will not be consistent because they will look like hypocrites. They will completely be ineffective in any attempts they have to reign in government. They were at least somewhat effective during the early years with the Tea Party. They were able to put some brakes on Obama to save the country from the full wrath of what Obama would have wrought uh, without the Republicans uh, applying some type of break. Well, those breaks will be completely missing under, under Biden, right? Biden is going to have carte blanche to pretty much do whatever he wants when it comes to deficit spending. I mean, the only pushback that he's going to get is going to be from foreigners in the foreign exchange market with a collapsing dollar and massive inflation. That's the only thing that's going to put the brakes on the Biden administration is going to be a complete implosion, a, a, a currency crisis with the U.S. dollar. And speaking about the U.S. dollar, it was weak across the board, but 
the currency that stood out the most was the Chinese yuan. The dollar dropped by better than 1.4%, which is a huge drop in one day in that currency. This is very rare. I mean, this is the weakest the dollar has been against the yuan since 2005. So this is pretty rare. And of course, there was no real news on today other than the fact that you know the stimulus is coming and that Biden's odds of reelection are improving. But I mean, this is nothing new. Yet the dollar still imploded anyway against the yuan. We're now just below 6.7 yuan of the dollar. 6.695-ish is where we settled. But the dollar's headed a lot lower against the yuan. And this is going to be very, very problematic uh, for the U.S., particularly in the Biden administration. You know, a lot of people think that uh, the Chinese have been manipulating their currency to their own advantage and to America's uh, disadvantage. It's actually the reverse. They have been manipulating their currency to America's advantage because America has been advantaged with better terms of trade. We've been able to buy more of what China produces because we've been able to get their stuff at a lower price and we've been able to get higher prices for what we sell them. Well, when the dollar implodes because the Chinese no longer manipulate it, our stuff is going to be a lot cheaper, which they'll be able to buy out from under us and we won't get as much yuan uh, for the stuff that we sell and all the things that we need to buy from the Chinese, well, they're going to cost a lot more money for Americans. So it's going to be a bad situation. It's going to get a lot worse. And, you know, there are a lot of people talking about what's frustrating, not just all these Republicans who are, you know, singing Trump's praises. But I was listening to this one guy who was on CNBC, and I forget who he was. But, you know, he obviously understands that running up these big debts and printing all this money is a problem, right? He gets that. But what he said, and he basically prefaced his remarks by saying, well, yes, normally it's a bad thing. But for America, we're in a unique circumstance, right? Because we issue the world's reserve currency, the U.S. dollar. And so because the dollar is the reserve currency, we are not going to be held accountable for these debts to the degree that other countries would be if they were doing the same thing. In other words, because the dollar is the reserve currency, we can get away with what other countries can't. So, you know, we're not going to be held to account for these big deficits and all this money printing because the dollar's reserve status is sparing us from the consequences of having to deal with the negative results of our profligacy. Now, normally we would be held to account, but we're not going to be because of the dollar's reserve status. And what this guy doesn't seem to get is that reserve status is not guaranteed to continue, right? Just because we've been able to abuse that privilege in the past and thus far we haven't been held to account for our debt, doesn't mean that the world is going to continue giving us a pass in the future, especially if we abuse the privilege to an even greater extent. Meaning that what this guy doesn't get is that because the debts that we have today are so enormous, and because we're now indicating to the markets that we couldn't give a damn how big our deficits are, even the Republicans no longer care, and we're going to run them to the moon because we know we can get away with it, 
and there are no negative consequences, if we could just borrow indefinitely and there's never a negative consequence, if we could have all this government for free and never have to pay for it, then why not? Why deny anything to the voters when you're telling them that they can have it all for free? And so our creditors are just watching this, you know, from afar. And, you know, this is very scary stuff if you're the holder of the world reserve currency. And we're telling you that this is what we're going to do. And now you're thinking, oh, my God, I mean, what is this going to cost? How many dollars are we going to have to hold? How much of our savings are we going to have to continue to plow into U.S. treasuries and other dollar denominated debt and just hold it there indefinitely, right? What toll is this going to exact on our economies? Because the more debt that we run up that we never repay, the larger the subsidy the rest of the world is required to provide the United States in order to continue having the dollar as a reserve currency. Well, clearly, the cost of maintaining the dollar status as a reserve currency far outweighs any benefits that the world derives from the dollar being the reserve currency. So that status is going to be lost. That's what this guy and so many other people don't get. And then we are really going to be held accountable, not just for all the mistakes we're making now, but the mistakes that we've been getting away with for decades, generations even. Right? So all the chickens are going to come home to roost, not just the ones that, that are flying out now. Our newest sponsor to the Peter Schiff Show podcast, Indeed.com, is the number one job site in the world. Indeed gets you the best people and it gets them fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need and you can pause your account at any time and you don't have to sign a long-term contract. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. Like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hires that you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering my listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job search, which means more quality candidates fast. So try Indeed out with a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. This is the best offer they have available anywhere. So go right now to Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply, and this special offer is only valid through December 30th. As I said, too, it wasn't just the yuan against which the dollar was falling today. The dollar was down across the board. In fact, the dollar index barely held on to the 93 handle. It closed at 93.04. So that relief dollar rally or dead cat bounce is clearly over. And I think we have new lows in sight. The weakness in the dollar was also delivering fresh strength to the gold market. Price of gold now solidly back above 1900 it was up about 36 dollars an ounce today closed above 1930 so gold again looking very strong an even bigger day in silver today silver back above 25 dollars an ounce up a dollar 28 closing at about 25 dollars and 12 cents per ounce gold and silver mining stocks had an even better day you had the gdx up 4.64%, and the juniors, GDXJ, that index was up 5.33%. So I think the doldrums that we saw 
in the mining sector. To me, after today's uh, rally and after the breakdown of the dollar, I think that we could see a very, very strong week next week uh, for gold stocks. And this is basically the precursor to a much bigger rally that we're going to have in the sector following the outcome of the election. Again, I think that you're going to see a rally in gold and gold stocks and a fall in the dollar regardless of the outcome of the election. But I do believe a Biden victory, which is far more probable uh, than a Trump victory, is actually going to result in a much bigger and quicker drop in the dollar and rise in the price of gold as the reality of a Biden victory really sets in and people have a chance to digest what this really means as far as deficit spending and money printing. Yes, we're going to have a lot more stimulus under the Democrats than we would have had under the Republicans, partly because the economy will be far weaker under the Democrats than it would be under the Republicans. And because it's much weaker, it will end up requiring, and that word in quotes, even larger doses of stimulus, which again will make a weak economy even weaker, which will necessitate even larger doses of the very stimulus that's making it so sick. And so I think that reality will really be staring a lot of people in the face after the election. And you're going to see this precipitous drop in the dollar rise in gold and gold stocks, which is why I really think that those people who are on the sidelines waiting for the result of the election for more clarity, I think you guys are making a mistake. I think you want to be fully positioned going into the election because I think you'll regret it if you're not. That means you want to get out of the dollar completely. You want to get out of U.S. stocks and bonds and you want to be fully positioned going into the election with a portfolio of foreign dividend paying stocks, value stocks, gold, silver, and the mining stocks. Because I think if you wait till after the election, to buy those positions, you're going to end up paying much higher prices because I believe there'll be a much bigger move immediately following uh, the results of the election. And while I'm on the topic of the election, I might as well take a little time to comment on the vice presidential debate that we had on Wednesday. Oh, by the way, the word now on the second presidential debate is that it's not even happening, although who knows Uh, Because initially, it was going to be a Zoom debate, right? Because Trump tested positive for COVID, and so Biden didn't want to be in the same room. In the vice presidential debates, nobody had tested positive, but they took a lot of caution there. Both candidates were standing behind uh, plexiglass, although that maybe they should have had uh, plexiglass completely surrounding the candidates to keep the flies out because one of the most notable aspects of the vice presidential debate was that fly that landed on Pence's head and just kind of hung out there for quite some time. It seems like uh, Pence didn't even realize the fly was there. Then all of a sudden it, it, it disappeared, but it was on his head for a while. But they, they took the precaution of you know putting the plexiglass, but that's not enough for Biden. He doesn't even want to be in the same room as Trump. And so initially they were proposing that the debate take place on Zoom where neither candidate was in the same room and they just did it remotely. And then I heard that Trump said, well, no dice. I'm not even going to have a debate. If we're not going to do it in person, then there's not even going to be a debate. And my expectation, though, is that Trump is going to cave in because if not, 
uh, he does a big favor for Biden because Biden would just assume not have any more debates. After all, by making it through the first debate, as I said, it didn't matter if he won or lost. All that matters is he went the distance. It doesn't even matter what the decision was. Even if you thought Trump won the decision, Biden won by not getting knocked out and by going, you know, going the distance for the full 90 minutes, right? So he's already done that. So if Biden can get away with not having any more debates, then I think that works to his advantage. And because it is his advantage, then I think Trump will ultimately cave, just like they're caving on the stimulus negotiations. So I think we will ultimately have the, uh, the Zoom debate that the president is threatening to call off if we don't have one in person. But I want to talk about this VP debate. Again, there wasn't anything notable about the debate. I mean, it was more civil than the presidential debate. I mean, not as much name calling, uh, but still there wasn't a lot of real substance. Uh, Each candidate was very polished in that they had memorized their talking points, right? They knew exactly what they wanted to say. They memorized all sorts of answers that they could recite no matter what the questions were. In fact, that was one of the frustrating parts about it is you would listen to the moderator read a question and then the answer would have absolutely nothing to do with the question that was asked because the candidates don't even care what the question is. They just know what they want to say, which is why I think, you know, we shouldn't even have any questions. There shouldn't even be a moderator. We should just have the two candidates and like a referee just to kind of make sure that both candidates get a chance to talk. But no questions, just let the candidates say what they feel like saying and let them question one another. And then if uh, a candidate asks a question and the other person dodges the question and doesn't answer it, then you can say, hey, answer my question. Here's my question. Can I get a direct answer? And actually push it because the moderator never does that. They ask a question, it doesn't get answered, and then they just ignore the fact that it wasn't answered. And then they asked another question. And both sides did this, right? Because there are questions that they don't want to answer, so they just pretend they're not even asked. I mean, one of the ones, obviously, that Pence ignored was the question on pre-existing conditions for healthcare. Again, he was asked, are you going to take care of people with pre-existing conditions? And he just ignored the question. He didn't even talk about pre-existing conditions, went on a totally different subject, and then that was the end of it. And the reason that Pence didn't want to answer the question is because you can't, because he has to lie. Now, of course, Trump had no problem lying about the very same question when Rush Limbaugh brought it up today, although Rush didn't really uh, delve into it. Uh, because he obviously knew Trump wasn't answering it and he didn't want him to because Limbaugh said, hey, you know, the Democrats are accusing you. They're saying that you don't want to protect free existing conditions. And, you know, the president says, oh, no, no, I love pre-existing conditions. They're great or whatever he's talking about. But then he, you know, he gets off the subject or barely brushes on it because what he doesn't want to admit is that you cannot have a health insurance system where people with pre-existing conditions can buy health insurance for the same price as people who are healthy. It is impossible. You know, Trump kept talking about on Rush Limbaugh why he hates Obamacare. Obamacare was so bad. And the reason that Trump said Obamacare was so bad was because of the individual mandate. He said people were required to buy insurance and that's why it was so bad. And I repealed that because nobody wants to be required to buy insurance. 
but requiring people to buy insurance is the only way to take care of pre-existing conditions. Again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The reason that healthy people buy insurance, even though they're healthy, is because they know if they wait till they get sick, they won't be able to buy it because it'll be too expensive. So it's the marketplace that forces healthy people to buy insurance. What Trump wants to do is take away the free market's penalty for not buying insurance. And the way Obama handled it is they took away the free market penalty for not buying insurance and imposed a government penalty instead. The government said, hey, you healthy people, you got to buy insurance. You can't just not buy it because we've eliminated the ability of the insurance companies to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. You can't take advantage of that. You got to buy it or we're going to fine you. See, the problem with Obamacare is the fine was too low. It wasn't high enough to actually force people to buy insurance. It was cheaper just to pay the fine. That's why the Supreme Court said it was constitutional. I disagree with the Supreme Court, but their rationale was it's not really a punishment for not buying health care because the punishment is so low, it's just a tax. And, and, and that's what people were doing. Healthy people were like, I'm going to pay the tax. You know, why should I buy insurance? I don't need it anymore. Thanks to Obamacare, I'll just pay this little penalty. What Trump did is get rid of the penalty. He said, yeah, people didn't like the penalty. Of course, they want to be able to not buy insurance and not pay a penalty and then get health care when they get sick. That's something for nothing. Anybody who believes that we should protect people with pre-existing conditions from having to pay higher prices for their health insurance, if somebody believes that, they don't believe in capitalism and they don't understand insurance. But nobody wants to have that discussion with the American public because it doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. What's easier is you got free health care. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't sympathize with people who have pre-existing conditions, but this is not the way to deal with it. I mean, first of all, the way to deal with it is make sure that people buy their health insurance before they develop those pre-existing conditions while they're still healthy and the insurance is not expensive. It's, it's when they wait until they get sick, that's when there's a problem. So the vast majority of people who have pre-existing conditions didn't always have those pre-existing conditions. It would have been possible for them to have bought health insurance in a free market before they developed those conditions. And one of the reasons that this happens is because health insurance is tied to your employment. So in many cases, if you lose your job, you lose your insurance. And then if while you're unemployed, you develop one of these conditions, now you're in trouble because now you get your next job and maybe you have the condition. Uh, but the only reason that health insurance is tied to employment is because the government did that with the tax code. The government tied them. So just untie them. Don't provide this subsidy for people to get insurance from work. Let people buy health insurance the same way they buy auto insurance or fire insurance or life insurance. Then once you buy your insurance policy, you'll have it. Doesn't matter whether you lose your job or not. You don't lose your auto insurance when you lose your job. So why should you lose your health insurance? And the minute you have a policy that you can keep regardless of your employment status, well, then the pre-existing condition isn't as big a problem. So there are ways to really deal with people who are born with pre-existing conditions, right? There are ways to do that. But what the government is trying to do just simply turns insurance into socialized medicine and free health care. And 
None of the Republicans now are willing to stand up for capitalism because they don't believe in it either, right? They just want slightly less socialism than the Democrats. And if it's an argument over how much socialism you're going to have, and if both candidates agree that socialism is good, well, then you might as well go for the guy that's promising more of it, right? Not the guy that's trying to be stingy, right? If everybody agrees that capitalism doesn't work and we need socialism, well, then let's go all in, right? Why settle for uh, half of a good thing when we can have the whole thing, right? We don't want socialist light. Let's just have a full dose of it. And that's unfortunately where we're headed. One point I wanted to make, though, on Camilla Harris is she did criticize uh, the Trump administration for running up the deficit, right? So finally, the big increase in the deficit came up. I don't believe it came up at all during the presidential debate. But Camilla Harris mentioned the fact that we're losing the trade war with China, which we are. And Pence's response was, what do you mean we're losing the trade war? Obama didn't even fight the war, which he didn't. It's Trump that declared war. And if you want to measure who's winning or losing by looking at the relative trade balance, we have a much bigger trade deficit with China than we had before we declared war. Trump declared war because he said our trade deficit was too big with China. We were going to win the war by reducing the deficit. If the deficit with China is much larger now than it was when we declared war, then how can we declare victory? We've clearly lost. So I think Camilla Harris was right to point out that Trump lost the trade war with China and that the trade deficit is getting bigger. But she specifically criticized the national debt, the debt for getting bigger, which didn't even get addressed in the presidential debate. But here is the complete hypocrisy. So Camilla Harris said that Donald Trump lowered taxes on the rich, and by lowering taxes, he ran up the debt. So she criticized the Trump tax cuts because the tax cuts ran up the debt. And now we had this much bigger debt because of these tax cuts. Of course, we would have had debt anyway, especially with what's been done uh, since COVID. But she specifically said that the tax cuts were bad because they resulted in more debt. Then she said that, vote for me if Joe Biden and I win, we are going to completely reverse the Trump tax cuts for the rich. Then she went on to say, and then we're going to use that money for all these new government programs. So in other words, she didn't say we're going to increase taxes on the rich. We're going to eliminate the tax cuts. And then we're going to use that money to pay down the deficits that Trump ran up with the tax cuts. No, no, no. She didn't say that. We're going to take the taxes that the rich are now paying, and we're just going to spend that money on government programs. In other words, the deficit isn't going to come down as a result of taxes on the rich going up because the Biden administration is just going to take that tax money and spend it on other programs. So in reality, Camilla Harris was lying. She wasn't upset about the deficit. She was upset about the tax cuts. See, Camilla Harris only doesn't like deficits if they are the result of tax cuts. But she has no problem with deficits if they're the result of increased government spending. Because if you're going to spend all the tax revenue that you recover by restoring the taxes on the rich, the deficits that the cuts produce aren't going to go away. So she doesn't like the deficits. She doesn't like the tax cuts. 
She doesn't mind making deficits bigger so long as the deficits are bigger as a result of increased government spending. And believe me, you're going to get a double barrel of increased government spending in a uh, Biden-Harris administration. The problem is eventually all that money the government is spending isn't going to buy you anything because the dollar is going to crash uh, and prices are going to go through the roof. I want to finish up the podcast, though, again, by talking about Bitcoin, which was in the news uh, yesterday and today. And, you know, a lot of people who believe that they are going to protect their purchasing power by owning Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is some kind of digital alternative to gold that's even superior to gold. uh, And they're hiding out in, in Bitcoin. Again, they have jumped from the frying pan into the fire. A lot of people are in for a rude awakening because they are going to lose as much, if not more, of their purchasing power in Bitcoin uh, than they will likely lose in the U.S. dollar. But the reason that Bitcoin was in the news and had a bit of a bounce, maybe 4 or 5% spike, was the news that Square, which is run by uh, Twitter's Jack Dorsey, announced that they had invested $50 million of their company's money in Bitcoin. And apparently that $50 million represents a 1% allocation of their capital. And they decided to put it into Bitcoin as some type of hedge or a store of value for their capital, uh, given you know the uncertain times and all the money printing and inflation. Now, of course, the minute that news broke, the price of Bitcoin spiked. But of course, the announcement wasn't that Square intended to buy $50 million worth of Bitcoin. The announcement was that they had already completed the purchase. They had already gone into the market and bought the Bitcoin. So any impact that Square buying Bitcoin would have on the market already happened. They already bought. What a lot of people should have been concerned about is why didn't that buying push up the price? I mean, who was selling Square all that Bitcoin? Because they bought $50 million worth and the price didn't go up. But it seems to me, too, that that's their allocation. They're not buying any more. So the reason the market rose on this announcement is that Bitcoin speculators are betting that this is some kind of watershed event, that this is just the beginning. uh, And now you're going to have this flood of other companies that are going to follow in Square's lead, right? You're going to have all these other companies that are going to start putting some of their money into Bitcoin. And so people want to front run that, right? If all these other corporations, if every corporation is going to put 1% of their assets into Bitcoin, oh, then the price is really going to go up. And so people wanted to to buy. But the reality is that Jack Dorsey buying Bitcoin is not some kind of new revelation. He has been one of the biggest Bitcoin promoters and backers since the beginning. I mean, Square a long time ago started dealing with Bitcoin and and having Bitcoin on their platform. The fact that Jack Dorsey and Square took a position in Bitcoin means nothing about other companies, right? This is not like, you know, a a, a company where the CEO has no, uh, you know, past involvement with Bitcoin, has no public opinion on Bitcoin, right? It's not like Microsoft or Apple said, hey, we're going to put 1% of all of our cash in Bitcoin, right? I mean, if one of these companies had said that, a more traditional company that had never expressed any kind of affinity for Bitcoin in the past, 
right? If you had Microsoft come out and say, yeah, we're going to put 1% of our cash in Bitcoin, maybe then you could make the argument, oh my God, if Microsoft is doing it, well, who else might do it? But if it's Jack Dorsey and Square doing it, you can't say anything. This is meaningless. This isn't news. I mean, this could have happened at any point. People who are now expecting that this is just a domino and now they're all going to fall. No, it's not going to happen at all. In fact, what's more likely to happen is we're going to get a big drop in Bitcoin at some point and companies are going to look at the bad experience that Square had and say, God, I'm never going to make that mistake. You know, to the extent that businesses like Microsoft or Apple, right, actually get worried about the value of their cash, right? Because they're holding a lot of cash. And if they get worried about inflation eroding away the value of their cash, because right now they're not. I mean, no one's worried at all. That's part of the problem. People are clueless about this. But to the extent that some of these guys start to worry, they're going to buy gold. They're not going to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a speculative asset. So if you're looking for a safe haven, why would you speculate? So before they you know, take a shot at Bitcoin, they would at least consider gold. But they're not even doing that. We don't even have companies announcing that they're going to keep part of their cash in gold yet. So I think that's going to happen a lot earlier than Bitcoin. The fact that um, Square is doing it is completely insignificant. And again, as I said, what's more significant is that they already bought all this Bitcoin and it didn't move the market up. So what will? Yeah, we got above 11,000. Big deal. I mean, as I'm recording this, we're slightly above 11,000. We're about 11,050. I mean, we haven't even been able to take out the 2019 high, let alone the 2017 high. I mean, Bitcoin is still in a downtrend. It's not going anywhere. Despite all this, you know, and I read all these articles too by the Bitcoin community. And, you know, whenever there's somebody in a company like Jack Dorsey, right, if they buy Bitcoin, they refer to these people as visionaries, right? Oh, these guys are so smart. They get it, right? They're visionaries. They're ahead of the curve. Look, you're not a visionary because you buy Bitcoin. I mean, you're actually blind, right? If you, if you actually knew what you were doing, if you could see, you'd buy gold or you'd buy silver. You wouldn't be buying buying Bitcoin, but they want to label these guys visionaries as if, ah, all the other idiots, right? The other fools out there who haven't bought Bitcoin yet, right? They can't see the future. They don't realize that Bitcoin is the future of money, right? And everybody's going to be using Bitcoin. It's going to replace the dollar. It's going to replace other currencies. It's going to supplant gold, right? So only the visionaries can see that. No, it's not the visionaries who see that. It's the fools who see that. There's, there's nothing to that vision. It is a phony vision. If you're a real visionary, you understand, you can see beyond the mountain to the valley to see the return of sound money, that this global experiment with fiat money is going to end. And in its place, the world will return to a viable monetary system, not based on some fiat digital currency, but based on real money, based on gold. That's where we're headed. And the true visionaries are the ones that see that.